Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Benjamin Perrin. He's the former lead criminal justice and public safety advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and he's currently a professor of law at the University of British Columbia, teaching in the areas of criminal law and international law. He joined UBC in 2007 after serving as a law clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada and advising judges at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and Special Court for Sierra Leone. But for the purposes of this conversation, it's important to know that he's also the author of the book Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. He describes himself as an advocate for compassionate, evidence-based approaches to pressing criminal justice and societal issues. And he is critical, especially of the current conservative leader's renewed call for a war on drugs, but also of this liberal government's slow and incremental pace of action in the face of an overwhelming crisis. Ben, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. And you are an interesting guest to have on this podcast because we share a passion for addressing the opioid crisis on the one hand, and there's a similarity there and common ground. But on the flip side, I'm a liberal MP and you are a former justice advisor to then Prime Minister Stephen Harper. So before we get into the substance of drug policy reform and how we can best save lives and following the evidence, how in the world did you come to be the justice advisor for the prime minister in Stephen Harper? Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of the thing that makes it an interesting conversation, right? Um, I, I I could have never imagined ten years ago when I was you know in the prime minister's office um, thinking that now I'd be on you know your show. You're a liberal member of parliament saying, yeah, let's decriminalize drugs. Like we've got to provide a safer supply. Let's get some evidence-based treatment going here. Like this is, uh, I'm the last person that I thought would be doing this. And, and I mean, that's really why I wrote my book overdose is that I wanted people who, who weren't yet on board with a compassionate evidence-based drug policy to really go on this similar journey that I went on. That was my goal in writing it for a you know broad audience. And, um, Hopefully, and I know it has had an impact because people tell me, you know, I have people come up to me or email me and say, hey, I, I changed my views on this. And others who said, yeah, you, I'm kind of halfway there. And look, we're all on a journey. You know, we're all on a journey on this issue. So long story short, I was, I became involved in, in, you know, conservative politics uh, as a teenager, you know, before I could vote. Um, I was a 16 year old kid and I uh, got recruited to go on a reform party uh, campaign bus youth bus. And I worked uh, alongside and got to know people like Corey Tenike and Jenny Byrne and Ray Novak and Pierre Polyev as part of the, you know, reform crowd. And, you know, there's a whole Shannon Stubbs, Mark Strahl, like this is all that group. So there yeah. was the bus and there was then an internship in Ottawa with Preston Manning. And, you know, it was bright eyed, this young Calgarian who was really interested in public policy. That's really where I was from. And, and the thing I, the thing that really is, I think, really difficult about party politics is, you know, the reasons that many of us got involved in politics, we might have had like one or two or three, like really major reasons that we got involved. And, but when you sign on for a party membership, and then you become a volunteer and, um, uh, you know, take on these positions in, in, in more of a kind of leadership capacity or advisory capacity, like I ended up doing with the prime minister, you're, you're signing on to a, a platform of stuff that you haven't maybe thought about even. And that was me with drug policy. I, I had never turned my mind to drug policy. So when I uh, was hired by the prime minister's office to come to Ottawa in 2012, at that point, um, the federal conservative government had already uh, unsuccessfully tried to shut down the first supervised consumption site in North America, inside here in Vancouver, where I live now. The court's uh, telling them the evidence was clear. This is 20 years ago, right, Nate? Like 20 yeah, exactly. years ago. Saying the evidence is clear, supervised consumption injection sites save lives, and we're still like debating it. It's it's incredible that we're still doing that. It's it's tragic, um, but that was there. You know, the the tough on crime laws had been brought in uh, to increase penalties for drug possession and drug trafficking, and so when I entered into the the picture as an advocate for you know victims of crime, that was my main goal. One of the things I'm I'm proud of that I was involved in in, in my time in the prime minister's office was you know being one of the uh, propose proponents of the victims bill of rights and the, you know, human trafficking provisions. And there's some stuff like that where I look at them, I'm, I'm proud of, you know, but I look back now at what I didn't do and what I did do on drug policy. And I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of it. And I, 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 and I've apologized uh, for that. And I continue to talk about it on like, that's why we're talking today. I don't believe yeah. I could just, you know, 
change my view and move on. I, I think there's a real moral obligation that people have when they they don't actively follow evidence when it affects people's lives and health and well-being and causes harm. And you know, if you if you come to realize that you were wrong, like you you should admit it. You know, we got to be big enough to admit it. And so the journey for me was, you know, I came back uh, from that position in Ottawa to my job as a law professor at UBC, which is my my you know my full time position teaching criminal law. And I'm literally driving my my car to and from work. And I started hearing this is around 2016 or so story after story of people who are overdosing and dying. And back then, it's not like today, you know, back then it was like, here's a person. Like they were a fa- their father or mother or cousin or daughter or son, you know, it tells who they were. We'd hear about them and it's humanizing and it was tragic. And now it's all statistics, almost, yeah. almost. Entirely. Yeah. Ten, tens of thousands of people. And, and, it, and they are large numbers, which does motivate people to act in some ways, but we, we do need to remember there are individual human stories and tragic human stories behind those numbers. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the thing I try to try to bridge, you know, in talking about this and writing about it, is that this is real. These are real people. And so I I, um, I was going through a little bit of a like midlife, not a little bit, I was going through a midlife crisis at that point in my life. I, I was, you know, you know, late 30s kind of thing. And um, really trying to, um, in many ways, like figure out who I was, what did I stand for? Uh, part of that was obviously like, deep soul searching, kind of re, re, reinvestigating my own faith, you know, and I, I literally pulled the car over and I was like, I'd started, you know, praying and, and that sort of thing and reading my Bible. I was raised going to church, but I'd never done those things, which is kind of crazy. If you think about someone who's like, Hey, I'm a Christian. You've never read your Bible. No, it's the, like the book your faith is based on, but you've never read it. That's kind of wacky, but that was me and actually many Canadians. And so I, I pulled over and I just said a simple prayer and like, this isn't what people are used to hearing, you know, when they're like, how did you start your research project? Well, this is the truth, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a popular thing maybe for some people, but it's the truth. And it's, it, it helps explain, I think, for people to get, how do you have such a change of heart? So it was a simple prayer. I did, it was a one line. I just said, my God, give me a heart of compassion for folks who are dying. And I didn't pray that prayer because I'm a good person. I prayed it because I, I saw that I was rotten. You know, I was like, I don't care enough. Like, I don't care enough. There's people dying in my community and I don't care enough. And I was part of this conservative government that, that turned the modern war on drugs on steroids in Canada. And I know we're going to talk in a minute about current conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, but he's, he's, he's actually going back to that as well now in, in spades. He's proposing to at least. So I've been part of that system. Uh, again, which I really just, it was a combination of ignorance. I just didn't know. And it was ideology. I didn't care. I, I you know. So how do you go though, from you're, you're in the car and you're praying and you're opening your eyes to the, the, the human tragedy in your community that's driven by the war on drugs in many ways, but how do you move from that to, which I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there has been that reversal and that you said, I'm going to follow the evidence and I'm going to learn what that evidence is and, and commit to it. Then you go on this journey from there to interviewing experts to really delving into the motivation, the motivating factors behind the opioid crisis. And that, and that is leading to such a loss of life across people, different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, yeah. different political spectrum, you know, across the political spectrum, of course. And and that's what I've noticed. I know you now have police chiefs that are articulating a view that they never would have articulated seven years ago. Right. And and they're now more seriously moving towards the evidence. And there does seem to be, an, you aren't the only one who is changing their views on this in a serious way. But But how did you come to not only change your views, but to become in a place where you're writing a book about it. Yeah. So I basically, nothing happened in the moment. You know, I, I just continued driving to work, but I was scheduled to speak at a uh, Christmas party a few weeks later. And it was the, it was a Christian legal fellowship group. So it's, you know, law students and, and uh, lawyers and stuff. And I, I had some remarks prepared and, and I threw them out and I just basically was like, people are dying in our community. Um, a, a public health emergency has been declared what are what are people doing about that like it's this is great like I, I was really upset and and a couple of people came up to me after and they said hey i'd like i'm i'm part of some nonprofit foundations if you want to and i said i want to look into this like we got to do something and they said if you want to start up if you're going to do a project you're serious like you know we'll support you so you know rather than waiting like i'll say one and a half to three years for research funding which is very typical for an academic from when you get an idea to actually having a dollar that you can use to hire students and travel and transcription all that um within within weeks 
the funding was in. I got the ethics approval and I started talking to people. And I, as you said, alluded to, I went and talked to everyone and anyone. I had a, I said, I got to have an open mind and set aside what I thought I knew about everything. It's sitting inside everything that we thought we knew. And I have to say, I think that's the approach that we as a society need to take to substances. I, I, we, we all were raised in with various views and prejudices and stereotypes, whether we know it or not. Maybe we have some life experience with addiction of some sort ourselves or with family members. That's, you know, that's relevant, but that's not the only thing. That's not the only piece of information we should be looking at. So, so that meant for me, things like, you know, going and actually interviewing, you know, government officials, like the head of the intelligence directorate here in Vancouver with the Canada Border Services Agency, and very quickly found out you can't stop fentanyl, which is the synthetic opioid that's fueling the opioid crisis, at least directly at the border. It's impossible. We'll come back to that in a minute. But then I talked to judges and they're like, look, this is counterproductive. And even judges, police, you mentioned police at that point had not yet come out in favor of decriminalization publicly, but we're heading in that direction. And I now have the, you know, the Canadian Chiefs of Police uh, Association has has supports um, the decriminalization of simple possession. I talked, of course, to also public health experts, addictions experts. But for me, the real, um, really deep and moving and you know, heart wrenching moments where we're sitting down with with parents. Um, exactly, I completely I completely agree. Is that you too? Yeah, you've yeah. That. It's it's yeah. there's a an evidence based conversation that's driven by statistics, that's driven by just the overwhelming reality of the failure of what's come before and and the need to do something different. But it is those individual conversations of people who have lost loved ones who say, "I'm asking." that you change the laws. And then I think it's also the most compelling answer back to the, those who would weaponize this for populist purposes to say, well, Nader Smith wants drugs on every street corner. And it's not me that, that wants a different policy. If, if you're suggesting that parents who have lost loved ones and, and, and people who have lost loved ones want some more permissive approach that is going to hurt even more people, how, how backwards can your thinking possibly be? Yeah. And bottom line is, you know, a leading advocacy organization for family members, uh, Mom Stop the Harm, they are the biggest advocates. They say, look, our children who died are not criminals. Right? That's exactly. not a law considered. Every, you know, they're not criminals. Pierre Polyev, we're going to get to, I can't wait too much here, Nate, to get to him. But <laughs> he, he, he wants to maintain the criminalization of people who use drugs. And, yeah. and you know, so so is the current federal liberal government, um, yeah. despite some moves, you know, in that other direction, they still continue to support that too. And um, so they don't get off the hook entirely either. But, you know, that was really key. Like, you know, sitting face to face, like like I, I hear you have too, with parents and hear them and they're telling their stories. And these are folks who've told their stories before, but they still are grieving, you know, and the, and it's, a, it's appalling to them that public policy in an area of it affects people's lives is being made based on politics. It's not based on evidence. Like imagine if we had like followed public opinion research about whether people who are obese and get heart disease are entitled to like medical care. Well, you know, they had it coming. They were, they were eating too much food. Like no one would say that, right. That's, that would, that's repugnant. And, and yet, um, you know, we think that it's okay to uh, make decisions as a society um, based on, you know, public opinion and, and, you know, politics and, and fear. And, you know, interestingly, actually, most the majority of Canadians support decriminalizing people who use drugs, they support overwhelmingly, uh, supervised consumption sites, these are things they support. What happens is that it that that it's conservative voters who who overwhelmingly don't. So that's why this has become a political wedge issue. Most Canadians get it. Most Canadians actually support these new yeah. uh, progressive policies, but it's become a wedge. And it's a hammer and it raises funds and conservatives have of uh, the federal conservatives have raised funding uh, previously. This isn't the first time they've used my um, name to raise funds. I remember oh. I was I was because I've long called for. I think I'm I'm seen to be in some cases a very left leaning liberal at times, in part because of my drug policy advocacy. Because in 2016 2017, I was calling for decriminalizing drugs and talking about regulating all drugs. You know, decriminalization is a step towards a broader answer of regulation from a public health perspective, where we regulate different substances differently, depending upon their different harms and, and different potential harms. And so, and we, we, we know this to be the right answer in, in most settings, yeah. but when it comes to historically illicit drugs that are scheduled in, in schedules in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, then we lose our minds and we treat them in a very different way. And, and so I think we just kind of have to get back to basics to say these, you know, these are substances 
that where they carry potential harms should be very tightly regulated. Um, if they're high, if they're more serious potential harms, in other cases where we got to a cannabis, where it's you know, of course, there are potential harms and public health challenges. But the answer is not to criminalize. The answer is not to even just decriminalize low-level possession. Um, if you really want to get at the overall problem of illicit poison toxic supply, if you really want to get at the problem of organized crime, there are ways of really strict regulation that answer that. And, and we obviously have a pharmaceutical model, for example, with respect to really risky substances, actually, in many cases. Um, and and opioid, opioids are one example of that. So, so let's get to the opioid crisis, because you've got a situation here where the federal liberal government, which we can we can talk about in a second, has articulated, I think, really strong rhetoric, but hasn't always matched that rhetoric with appropriate policies. Uh, you know, in fits and starts, we're getting there, but but certainly nowhere near to where we need to be at, at the moment, given the scale of the challenge. But on the conservative side, I have to admit, I quite liked Aaron O'Toole, and I thought that he was not embracing in full that evidence-based approach, but he was moving his party in the right direction. And then we get, you know, the new leader who's seems to be returning to a, a pretty standard war on drugs approach, although it's trying to articulate it as yeah. some kind of new vision. What, when you look at what he's calling for, this is more politics, no, no real substantive policy, but you, but you did a, uh, a rundown of sort of myth busting. And I think it's useful to walk through some of the myths that are being perpetuated in the course of the new, the leader's rhetoric. Yeah, Andrew Shear used me in a fundraising email, I think, back in the day because of that that drug policy advocacy. But I've also introduced legislation. And then the next day, John Broussard and other conservatives, people I like, I'll sit next to and chat with. It was, you know, liberal Nader Smith wants drugs on street corners and, and whatever, uh, uh, you know, the, the silly rhetoric happens to be. But we're seeing some of that silly rhetoric play out again with, with the new leader. So we've got the opioid crisis is caused by taxpayer funded drugs. Yeah. What's the, what, let's let's start let's start with that one. Yeah, and just for just for context, I know most people at this point have heard of it, but these are all it's all in response to a video that um, Pierre Pauly of the New Conservative Leader put out, uh, Federal Leader, on November twentieth, and it it it, it, it uh, before we get into the claims, uh, we got to talk about what's the backdrop because there's the message yeah, and then there's right. the medium, right? Right, so right, right, right. Agreed. You know, he's he's sitting in front on this beach in Vancouver. It's I live here. This is you know Crab Park. It's a, it's, uh, it's in a very, um, it's a very, uh, economically depressed area. It's an area of known where there has been, um, violence against, um, against women on the streets who are engaged in survival, the survival sex trade or prostitution. Uh, it's a very difficult place. And, and right now the current average rent in the city of Vancouver is, is $2,500 a month. Uh, it snowed here in Vancouver last night. Um, which rarely happens. And um, yeah, their neighbor let us know, yeah, there's, there's someone in a tent in the park and there's like, a, you know, inches and inches of snow. Like it, this is, you know, we do what we can to support people, support people in need here, but you know, he's still sleeping in the snow, even if he's got a hot water bottle and some, you know, food to eat. Um, and Pierre, rather than go and talking to these folks who are living in these tents on this beach behind him, you know, understanding and listening to hearing from them and meeting the families, by the way, who live there with their children, there are many, 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 People who are who are homeless, living in tents, trailers, minivans, oh, out yeah. of parking lots that are young children. There's there's been studies on this. It's it's tragic. Instead of that, he's pointing back at them, and this is the you know these are the you're probably all addicted to drugs, and this is where crime is from, and it's 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 sick. It, and oh yeah, and, and it wasn't disgusting. lost. It wasn't lost on me either. Here's someone who, when it came to convoy protests in Ottawa, was willing to go into the crowd and speak to people, but when it comes to People experiencing mental health challenges in some cases who are experiencing some disruption in their in their lives, including financial disruption, a loss of a job, potentially who are finding themselves in a place where they where they almost certainly do not want to be in a long term facing way. And he's exploiting really society's discomfort with marginalized people who, who are just yeah. trying to survive. That's right. Our fear, you know. It's it's a fear. Um, it's and so it's it's sick. I mean, I was dis I was disgusted when I saw it. I had that really same was. reaction. I, I had exactly that same reaction. But even before we got to all the the yeah, what he said, the misinformation and everything else, I agree. 
Yeah. So let's get into the claims though. So yeah, f- this is the first one. There's, there's more, but we're, you know, these are a few that I just identified right off the bat. As you, as you mentioned, you know, he says the opioid crisis is fueled by taxpayer, taxpayer funded drugs. Uh, that's, that's a lie. Um, we know from the coroner service here in BC and then nationally, they aggregate the data, um, because autopsies and toxicology reports are done when people die, um, in, you know, not just on the street, but in our homes is where most people are dying is in private residences, okay, people's homes. It's it's contaminated street drugs. Um, 80 to 90% of people who died of opioid drug uh, toxicity, it was illicit drugs. That means street drugs, not safer supply. He's trying to say safer supply is the cause. The BC Coroner Service released its latest findings um, prior to Mr. Polyev's video coming out and said there was no evidence that anyone it's not to say it couldn't happen, okay? But at this point, there's no evidence that anyone has overdosed and died because of us access to a safer supply. So it's actually is- so perverse that it is a safer supply if we had a safer supply, because we can get in the fact that we don't truly have That's right. a safer supply at scale. But the, the most perverse element of this is that it is a safer supply that if we were to displace the illicit poison drug supply with that safer supply, those same people wouldn't be dying. We'd be better off. I mean, the research is clear on safer supply. And um, I'm not someone who supports the legalization of drugs like you'd have with alcohol and cannabis. We actually have gone too far with alcohol. We can talk about that later. But in terms oh, of Oh, yeah. Well, the commercialization. That, yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's a problem. The, the, if we take a serious public health approach, you would be certainly removing the punitive sanctions that are pushing people into the black market, driving prohibition and, right. and, and all of the dangers that come with prohibition. Prohibition is the absence of regulation. But if you have a commercialized approach and, and embracing commercialization, you end up do, as we see with alcohol, experiencing greater public health ch- challenges along the way. Yeah. And I mean, I do think it's 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 good to just do a shout out to, um, you know, Senator Patrick uh, Brzeau, who actually has introduced a bill requiring uh, labeling on alcoholic beverages about the cancer risk that's currently before the senate and um huge you know in terms of drug harms if you you know briefly to go back to that for a moment you mentioned that you know the lancet which is uh you know one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world if not the most did a study in in published a study in 2010 where they had a, a panel of international experts who assessed various harm to users harm to others and sort of put those together and the substance that had the highest uh, aggregate harm was alcohol Exactly. So, you know, we don't actually make drug policy based on harm. We make it based on politics. So so that's yeah. the first false false claim, though, is that this opiate crisis is caused by a safer supply. Uh, it's a bald faced lie. OK, so fact check two. Fact and two. this this one, I have to admit, I just completely lost my mind when I saw him say this because. The. He's propo- he's presenting this video as if this is sort of a new approach the liberal government's failed everything's broken and their approach is is this abject failure and he says we know what works and then the very first thing he says because i you know I, there, let's let's be honest and there's merit in reinvesting and 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 greater investment in on-demand treatment and i think there's actually collaboration that could happen across party lines with respect to on-demand treatment but the very first thing he says when he says we know what works is border control and yeah. it's laughable because that's we know exactly that it doesn't work. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an easy sell to people who don't know, right? Um, if something bad is entering your country, let's stop it. This is this is classic war on drugs one hundred and one. By the way, right? Um, it's we're going to crack down on supply and we're going to crack down on demand. That means cracking criminalizing people and investing more money in enforcement to stop the drugs coming in, and. Just to start with, how is it even possible to stop it at the border? Let's talk about that, okay? So fentanyl is a synthetic drug. Again, that's the drug that up to 90% of people who are dying of drug overdose deaths are, are have been found to have consumed when they died, often in combination with alcohol or other drugs, but it's the common denominator. And, you know, important to pause and say, what is fentanyl? You know, it was created in a lab. It was, it's, it's not naturally occurring. So that means it can be produced anywhere in the world. So the idea that we can stop it at the border is is a total joke. When I interviewed the Canada Border Services Agency, they told me 1.9 million packages enter the Vancouver International Mail uh, sorting facility uh, every month. So almost 2 million every single month from China. Now, why I mentioned China is because that's where criminal intelligence and actual uh, cases uh, have found the majority of fentanyl entering Canada has come from. So, And they're finding it in packages as small as greeting cards. 
like think about the Christmas cards that people still sometimes send, you know, it's kind of old fashioned, but you might get a few now. That's, that's what they're finding it in. It's, it's that potent. It's a powder and it is, you know, 50 to hundred times more powerful than naturally occurring heroin. And so um, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And when I asked them like, Hey, how many did you, how many do you find? How many of these small packages? They said, it's, it's impossible to search them all. And they're catching the smallest possible fraction. And so cracking down the border doesn't work. If you want to waste a ton of money, go ahead, like go ahead and hire some more CBAC officers. If you do seize more drugs, what happens? We already know from alcohol prohibition. It's something called the iron law of prohibition that the harder the enforcement, the harder the substance. And so um, people are probably exactly. like, moonshine, right? If, if alcohol suddenly became illegal, then you're not going to, you know, you and I want to make money on, on illegally smuggling. You and I wouldn't do this neat, but someone else is going to go and illegally smuggle um, alcohol. They're not going to smuggle beer right? You're 5% beer, or maybe you drink IPA and it's up to 8% or whatever. Um, you're going to smuggle something that's more potent this year and you're going to get a really potent. And that's exactly. what happened. And that's, you know, people actually did, it's kind of a joke on the Simpsons or other shows about people got, went blind during prohibition. They actually did. People did. And they, you know, died even. And so people uh, saw that happening in the, in alcohol prohibition, saw it didn't work, but then we get the war on drugs. And what the research shows like quite shockingly is the, the more, um, globally that cannabis, cocaine, and heroin were seized by, we're talking hundreds of tons of, of, of those substances, not like a kilogram, hundreds of tons, the potency got, got more and more potent. So you don't send your, you know, 5%, 10% cocaine, you're sending highly potent cocaine. And with heroin, why do we have to go to Afghanistan and, you know, negotiate with drug lords? We're going to create fentanyl a synthetic opioid in a lab, way more potent, easier to get into Canada. So we can't stop it at the border. And even if we did, um, we very well would create a um, our own um, market. And that's what happened with methamphetamine, I've been told, is we cracked down a lot and then we became a global exporter of, of meth. Well, it, it speaks to the unintended consequences of otherwise well-intentioned policies in some cases, because, uh, and, and this is where I think uh, not the exploitative nature of that video, but there are any number of individuals who would come at this in the same way from, you know, sometimes from a religious background, sometimes from not, certainly from sort of that that temperance kind of background to say, well, it would be better for people to not use this substance or not to use that substance. Yeah. And there's some there's some moralizing that comes with that that is that is incorrect. And then in other cases, interventions are warranted and people are struggling with, with substance use issues. And it's very important to get them the help that they need uh, when they're ready for it. Um, having said that, the law enforcement approach, not only at the borders, but also even within our own country, uh, you speak very eloquently around the the iron law of of prohibition and, and, and the failure of border enforcement. I will tell you that I came to this issue in many ways because I came across in undergraduate law enforcement against prohibition. And it was former police officers, judges, prosecutors, largely in the United States, actually brought a a former cop up from uh, New York state to campus. And he spoke about how he had spent his whole life fighting the war on drugs. And in his view, he looked back and said, I made it worse yeah. because in, in the end, there's the iron law of prohibition around the potency challenge. But he would also look to say when we took out a particular dealer in our community, and of course, there's moral approbation that should certainly be brought to bear against those who are preying upon people with mental health challenges and, and our people are preying upon people with substance use issues uh, for profit. Having said that, in his view, he, he looked at it and he said, after taking out a particular dealer in a particular community, it didn't remove the economic incentive. And so what it did is it created a turf war and there was even more violence and even more and even more uh, tragedy ultimately. And so there are always these unintended consequences where we might be well-intentioned, but if we don't follow the actual evidence, we we in many cases lead to lead ourselves to worse outcomes. Now, okay, so false claim number three, you, uh, this one made me laugh because, but I think it will be a regular talking point of, uh, of Pierre Polyev in terms of the woke liberal and NDP, NDP policies, but he was suggesting that addictions are in, in many ways a result of those policies. And I think what he's driving at here, and, and it's worth speaking to the difference between mandatory treatment, voluntary treatment, and, and and the right approach here, because I, even when I was first coming to this issue, thought a more mandatory interventionist policy might make more sense. And largely because, you know, in some cases, maybe, you know, and this is Pierre, this is Pierre's attack, 
you're he's attacking this idea of coddling that you know people are being encouraged to use substances and, and instead of being told they should be getting treatment and the help that they need and, and, and getting off substances and so the 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 dressing it up as woke liberal and NDP policies is ridiculous on its face but bracketing that out and just looking at it from a well it's the state that is encouraging drug use and that's why people are, are struggling with this and it's liberal and NDP policies that are taking this soft on crime approach that is actually encouraging rampant drug use. Yeah, let's talk and about addiction. What, yeah, let's talk about what causes people to become addicted. Um, you know, in Canada, what the research shows is it is the government's policies, but it's not the current government's policies I'm focusing on here. It was our our genocidal policies against indigenous peoples. If we really want to look at the source of the substance use problems in Canada, indigenous peoples are disproportionately affected by the opioid crisis in in massively higher numbers in terms of overdoses and deaths. And particularly with respect to indigenous women, there's a real split between non-indigenous men and women in the overdose crisis. But when we look at indigenous peoples, um, shockingly high numbers of indigenous women um, are um, falling prey to the overdose deaths. And the research is very clear. It's the, it's the ongoing legacy of the residential school system, the 60s scoops, which is a term people are familiar with probably mainly, but that doesn't end in the 60s. It's a general term that lasts for, you know, even up to now with the child welfare crisis um, where Indigenous kids have, were taken and by the thousands from their, from their homes, uh, from parents, and usually under the pretext of quote-unquote neglect, which we now know meant that they were just poor, you know, again, part of the impacts of colonialism. So we know that that intergenerational trauma is a significant factor. We also know that early childhood trauma for people who who are or are not Indigenous is a significant factor. Uh, the research on adverse childhood experiences says that someone with a moderate level of childhood trauma, that includes things like physical, emotional, sexual abuse, a parent having a parent who has a mental health disorder or is incarcerated, that sort of stuff. If you've got a moderate level of that as a, as a child, you're seven to 10 times more likely to develop a substance use disorder. You know, and go back to what, and go back to what I said a minute ago, what is fentanyl? It's a pain relief medication. That's what it was made by human beings for in a lab. And that is how it is being used today. People are trying to medicate the pain. And the reason that they're dying in such massive numbers, again, is that politicians like Pierre Polyev are letting organized crime create the recipe for what people are taking. That's what criminalization is. Whereas with a regulated safer supply of known contents and potency, that would at least make people safer, right? Um, and we do want people to be able to get a support when they're ready to rapid access to culturally appropriate treatment and recovery. It's not an either or, right? It's not an either or, it's an and. We need to provide safer supply, decriminalize people and support evidence-based treatment. And it's on that latter third leg of the stool in some ways that we underinvest. We promised $500 million for expanding treatment options in the 2021 platform. We've only realized $100 million to date. And I think that's a problem and, and, and certainly we need to do more. It's also frustrating because that is the one area of the conservative attack that I actually think there's merit to in the sense that they want to only speak to treatment. And it makes no sense to only speak to treatment. I mean, they don't only, they also want to speak to law enforcement and, and just double down on, on ridiculous policies and the war on drugs of the past. But where they, there is merit to their argument and, and, and the attack is around treatment options. And, and the answer, it seems to me, would be to say, well, we need to massively expand safer supply to make sure that people are not dying from an illicit yeah, poison supply. Ultimately, we need to make sure we are encouraging people to get the help they need and not criminalizing them and, and pushing them into the shadows to say they're not going to talk about this with their family. They're not going to talk mm -hmm. about this with their with their loved ones and their friends, and they're going to yeah. go seek out treatment. And, and there's not going to be that stigma with seeking treatment. But third, we do need to rapidly expand on demand treatment. Now, question for you, and this is we can get back to the false claims. But when I first was drafting legislation on this, I was convinced that I was just going to follow the Portugal model because that's the model that is held up as the most successful in many cases when we talk about decriminalization. And I could recite the stats to say, well, you know, after decriminalization in Portugal, there was a 60% increase in the number of people seeking treatment and drug overdoses collapsed. And, and there hasn't been a demonstrable increase by any means in the number of people who use substances. And so on all accounts, a success. At the same time, it is quite coercive in the sense that if you were to be in you know, whether on the streets or in your apartment, regardless if you were 
if you had possession of an illicit substance, you would then be referred to a dissuasion commission, a panel better than a criminal judge, but a panel made up of a, you know, a, a legal expert, a social worker, and a healthcare professional. And then in most cases, because of the way they implement it is quite successful, they would say, in the vast majority of cases, the proceeding suspended, you go about your business, you go back to your life, and there's and there's no penalty. But in other cases, they can mandate treatment, they can actually suspend your driver's license, that there are even fines that are potentially on the table. When I started going down that road, I was then disabused of my my understanding of, of, of the best approach, because most people were telling me, well, actually, we have drug treatment courts, there's a course of element, they actually don't work. Mandatory treatment, generally speaking, doesn't work, and people do need to be ready. That's and right. So it's actually just making sure that there are the conditions of on-demand treatment is available. We're not going to force people into it. Is that, is that your view as well? Yeah, hundred um, percent. I think people are quick to talk about Portugal, and I think the general idea is, you know, that that we need to treat this as a health issue, not a criminal one, and that there's support for treatment and not criminalization. That part is what I agree with, right? And that's what most people when they hear what Portugal are really thinking of. But as you get into the details, I have to say, I do agree with you. And what I, where I go with this is that, you know, the, the addictions medicine experts I spoke with said that when someone who has a long-term substance use disorder, like opioid use disorder says to their friend or family member or physician or, you know, peer, I'm, 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 I'm done. I can't live like this anymore. Like I, and everyone in their addiction gets to that point at some point, everyone does. You, this is the kicker for me. I didn't know this. Okay. This is why I do research. I said, you only have at most, at most 72 hours to have that person into. And I'm not talking just like a first meeting to get them stabilized, to get them housed to, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're not in, in a housing situation, many people are housed, right. But to get them stabilized on, on, um, uh, medical substances, which can help to reduce the cravings. So people are probably familiar with methadone, but there's also other drugs like Suboxone and other types of medications that are, you know, people use to get stabilized and then, you know, be able to do the hard and difficult work of, you know, beginning to work through in, in individual trauma counseling or group sessions, um, that really painful, uh, childhood and intergenerational trauma. But bo- bottom line is you can't force someone into medical treatment. Um, that is, it's, 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 it doesn't work and it's, it's quite cruel. Um, it's again, part of this punitive idea. The idea of involuntary treatment is very popular politically. It's very popular. Our current premier here in BC has been ruminating on that publicly and it's, it's the wrong way to go. Um, what we do find works and the research shows this is that when you have, um, things like, um, supervised consumption sites that, that refer out to treatment. And so relationships get built by the nurses, um, the volunteers, the peers with folks as they're coming in um, and they're using their substances. And if they, you know, build those relationships and, you know, one day they're like, yeah, you know what? I, I don't want to live like this anymore. You know, I want to, you know, maybe they've got a reason now, or maybe there is a crisis that's precipitated, but that's, those are the folks when there's a relationship and a willingness that, that, that op- opens up opportunities, and the research shows that that those um, those referrals are are helpful. Um, whereas forcing someone to stop using something they're using to medicate pain just typically backfires. We I think have covered off the fourth uh, false claim that you identified he is again around keeping drugs out of the country, which I think we 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 covered off usefully, and this is one that the conservatives will come at regularly. Number five. It's the idea of cracking down on hardened repeat offenders to stop the drug trade. It's again this law enforcement element, and I and this comes up not only in the, in the drug enforcement context, but across the board, just in terms of increasing penalties in order to deter. And again, it's intuitively from a political perspective because we hear it from constituents. Well, we just we need to throw the book at people, and and, and people won't right. do these things. Um, my my general read of the literature has been. It's not about the significance of the sanction. We can talk about the failure on, on drugs in particular, and there are all sorts of unintended consequences that we discussed. But if you did want to take a law enforcement perspective in a successful way, it's not even about the significance of the sanction. It's actually about the likelihood of getting caught. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, research is clear in Canada and internationally. Increasing penalties does not have any deterrent effect. And the reason is people... First of all, people don't know what the what the penalties are. 
they're told they're not lies. reading the criminal code before committing no. a crime. Yeah, I hate to break it to you. They're, <laughs> they're not doing that. And um, you know, I interviewed uh, defense counsel who represent people who get charged with um with with drug offenses and and they said they're they were like first off who are who are dealing drugs these are not the masterminds okay the, exactly. the criminal masterminds that's are not that's an important point to make yeah yeah they're not and when i asked you know you'll hear police like vancouver police and other police agencies say oh we we've charged you know 900 people with drug trafficking to crack down if you get them to do the numbers and say how many of those are street level dealers it's almost all of them Almost all of them, okay, over ninety percent. And the reason I bring that up is what what is happening with street level dealing? Who could you convince? Do you suppose? Who do you think you could convince to put themselves out publicly selling an illegal substance where they where we all know the police are out there undercover? They know where the drug purchase yeah. areas are. And every only city. someone yeah. who is in desperate need of a dollar. Yeah, you got it. And 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 here's what you're paid. What are you paid to be a street level dealer? What are the what are the big bucks you're earning? The going offer in Canadian cities, at least I can speak to Vancouver and what I heard from police in this province is you get a hit. Wow. So you you sell 10, you get one. Wow. So you're paid in the substance you're addicted to. Those are the criminal masterminds we're going to throw the book at. Those are the repeat hardened criminals, I think, Pierre Paul, I've called them. So guess what? They're taken off the street. we got another person in 10 minutes. So it doesn't work. And again, you're just you know basically punishing addiction. Now, I'm not here to be a i'm not here to justify that i'm just saying look let's be real like let's talk about who we're speaking about and what would work and what would work is rather than having people go to um a street level dealer and funding you know organized crime which is what drug the drug trade is it's organized crime instead let's oh and how do you get the money for that if you're not upwardly mobile and you are having to come up with one study found 1200 us a month to cover um an illicit substance. That's a lot of money. That's where you get into things like car break-ins. That's where you get to things like petty crime, the open air markets that are selling, you know, not all of it is stolen, but you know, some of it probably is. And that's where you get the crime element. What happens when you provide someone with a safer supply, they no longer have any need to do that. And they stabilize a study out of Ontario, which was presented on at the international um, addictions conference this, uh, this week out, out in, in Lisbon actually found that there were people on the safer supply programs in Ontario who were able to stabilize their lives. They're no longer hustling to get the drugs. So they finished their schooling. They got jobs. They got in volunteer volunteering now. They're not caught up in the criminal justice system. And they're and they're at way, way lower risk of overdosing and dying. Those are all positive like social outcomes. Like, isn't that what we want? And it's cheaper. So we can when people say lock people up, I'm like, hey, get your checkbook out. Get your get, get yeah, your exactly. Out. From a from a cost perspective. And then also if we take the idea of public safety seriously, what delivers public safety? When, when we talk about low-level crime in our communities, for example, and people point their finger and say, well, it's people who are who are suffering from addictions, who are feeding their addictions. Well, how do you want to address it? Do you actually want to reduce crime and do you actually want to support public safety or not? Because there's an effective way of doing it. And then there's an ineffective way of doing it. And I think we have to re-own the public safety conversation in, in a serious way in order to be effective and to push back against this tough on crime narrative, which can be knee-jerk popular. But if we emphasize that, no, 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 the real way to preserve public safety is in this way. And your point around stabilization is really important. And it actually answers uh, your false claim number six, where you make a point to say peer-reviewed research on safe supplies, cost-effective, reduces overdose deaths, reduces criminal justice involvement, and can help people stabilize. Okay, you're, the last... Uh, false claim. And then I want to direct your attention to the liberal government because, I, you know, I, I don't want to give a free pass on that front. So false claim number seven, more detox programs are needed. Mm -hmm. This is where I get really concerned, um, Nate, because, you know, when you hear conservative politicians, whether it's Pierre Polyev in Ottawa or it's, um, you know, former Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, uh, Premier Daniel Smith is continuing the same policy, you know, Saskatchewan, other pro Ontario, you know, they talk, you hear conservative politicians say, we need more treatment. You got to listen really carefully what they're talking about. They're usually not talking about medically, medical evidence-based treatment. They're usually talking detox. What they mean is they want people to go cold turkey, just stop using. That's usually what they're talking about. The, the British Medical Journal found that patients who successfully completed inpatient 28-day detox periods for uh, opioid use disorder were more likely to die of a drug overdose within a year, more likely. So 
Detox alone is not recommended. Um, the Canadian Medical Association Journal has guidelines on how to treat people with opioid use disorder, and they say it's dangerous for most people. They don't recommend it because your tolerance rapidly goes down when you're using less drugs or no drugs at all. And then if you do go back, because this is a chronic relapsing medical condition, then you're substantially likely to overdose and die if you do that. So I've, I've interviewed people from my um, speaking of being smart on crime rather than tough on crime, we should talk again in a year. My next book will be out then, hopefully. Um, and and that's really where I go down that that road. It's the title of the book is Indictment: The Criminal Justice System on Trial. So I'm planning on continuing to work on this, and and I'm excited to share that when it comes out. But one of the folks I interviewed for that was a man who spent most of his life incarcerated. He came out of prison, which is also a place like a forced detox, and he went back to use his substance. He's addicted. He's going back to it. And he said, I knew there was a high risk. So I, I was using like a crumb. He's like, this is like nothing. It's not even going to help me anyway. Um, I'm not going to feel it. And he said, as soon as he took it, he basically like hit the, hit the floor, overdosed. He couldn't believe how rapidly his tolerance had gone down. And fortunately, someone was there to you know, revive him. But the, the point being that incarceration, um, detox programs that are kind of claimed to be recovery programs, if, if that's all we're saying for people, that's all we're going to do to help you is make you stop using and then do some talk therapy. That's not medically recommended and that's going to kill more people. So I don't want to leave people without hope here. We actually do know what will work. We know that we need to keep people alive with things like safe places to use, safer supply, and provide them with that rapid access to evidence-based treatment. We need to do all of that and we need to do it now. And we need to stop treating this as a criminal issue, stop playing politics with it and, and move on with it and start helping people. Well, that's a very useful pivot then to direct our attention at the liberal government, because my criticism generally is to say, we've come a long way since 2015 in a, in a positive direction. We, we now have the right approach, the right rhetoric, certainly, and, and the right overall approach to treat drug use as a health issue. But we haven't changed the laws and certainly provided the resources to deliver on that overall commitment. Would you let's start with criminal justice policy before we get to the resources question. And we have just passed C5, which we can we can talk about. But the direction is the right one. We just aren't getting to where we need to get as quickly as we need to get there. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's I've heard this, this is sort of described as incrementalism, you know, to, there's a lot of pilot programs. Let's try this. Let's do a little bit of this. Let's do a partial decriminalization, but only in BC. Look, we're in a <laughs> the public health emergency for the opioid crisis was declared in 2016 in British Columbia, and it should have been declared nationally. That's another thing. It still hasn't been, which is appalling. And since then, tens of thousands, over over 30,000 people in Canada have died. And so we're way past the point of of incrementalism. Um, there's no, there's no justifiable reason in my view for, from a public policy perspective that we should not immediately decriminalize all people who use drugs. And what that means is we're, we're not going to, um, charge them with possessing, simply possessing these substances they're addicted to. We're not going to put conditions on people when they're released from prison that they abstain from using. If someone's addicted to a drug saying like, if you use it again, you're going back to jail. I mean, what are we doing here? Like, this is cruel. It's costly. It's ineffective. So we need to do that. And, and we definitely need to move down the road towards uh, safer supply. So um, I do think that I do know um, and believe that politics are also being played with this by, um, you know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on this issue. That's the news I got from firsthand meetings. I published it in my book. I contacted his office for a comment. And they, of course, didn't get back to me. So all we have are the, you know, credible allegations that his reason for not moving forward on decriminalizing um, other substances is because of the political heat he took from the you know, conservatives on. on I, I think I think unquestionably the reason we haven't gotten to a place of full decriminalization of low level possession. And, and as you, I think, rightly articulate decriminalizing people who use drugs. The reason we haven't gotten there yet is because of politics, not policy. The policy overwhelmingly yeah. is there. And it's actually. Um, I'm comforted at least by the fact that we've got to a place like C5 because my understanding of C5 and and I'll get a little bit into the background of it because I wonder what you think about it. The there are parts of it mandatory minimum sentences and there are parts of it conditional sentencing, but the part that I had a hand in directly was around the provisions in the CDSA. In December of 2019, my second son was born and the prime minister called me in January of 2020 and he congratulated me on that. And I said, well, thanks, Justin. And oh, by the way, 
I won the private members bill lottery. I'm sure that's music to your ears. And I'm going to introduce something on drug policy uh, because I think we should decriminalize drugs. I know you're not there. So I'm going to introduce a bill on that. But if there's a bill that I can get the government to support that moves as close to that as we possibly can get, give me an advisor from your office, give me an advisor from health and justice, and let's work out a compromise. And C5 originally was a private member's bill that I'd introduced that was that compromise. And what gives me comfort is I think it would virtually make it impossible. I, I think it will make it impossible to successfully prosecute simple possession. So it's it's less than ideal because it doesn't give that signal of a health-focused approach in a complete way. It's less ideal because it still has police officers as the frontline enforcers and not all of those police officers will enforce it exactly as the bill suggests that they should. Having said that, there are evidence-based measures, diversion measures and principles in, in that bill that say, Problematic substance use should be addressed primarily as a health and social issue. Intervention should be founded on evidence-based best practices. Criminal sanctions imposed in respect of the possession of drugs for personal use can increase the stigma and are not consistent with established public health evidence. Judicial resources are more appropriately used in relation to offenses that pose a risk to public safety. Um, And so when you add up those factors and the police and prosecutors have to keep those factors in mind, it's hard to believe you'd ever see a successful prosecution, which we would get to a place of de facto decrim, which is is as close as we could get um, in terms of because of the politics. And so I can tell you, frankly, like I, you know, is that the ideal bill for me to have drafted and introduced? No, I had another one that just deleted section four of the CDSA. Yeah, I remember I supported that one. <laughs> but but yeah. this was because of politics and, and it is largely driven. And this is why I actually really appreciated the direction that Aaron O'Toole was taking the party, because I thought. It was going to open up space to have a more serious evidence-based conversation across the spectrum. Uh, Now, given we're back to where we're at, I think we're unlikely to see the the liberal government move towards full decrim and C5 will be sort of a satisfactory solution and and because of politics. So on the decrim side, I see great success because we've got de facto decrim via C5 and we've got the, the pilot in BC. But your point back is very well taken, which is... That's still too incremental, Nate, and people are dying. Well, yeah, and like I, you know, I I understand where you're coming from, and I I'm very grateful that you've been in such a strong advocate on this file and that. Um, my take is a little different on on C5. Obviously, I I do I do um think there's problems. First of all, it's still maintaining the stigma that yeah yeah exactly. Uh, that, so exactly. that's number one, right? Still maintains yeah. the stigma. That's, that's a fair this point. Is illegal. Um, yep. Secondly, I have a problem with it being so discretionary. And it's discretionary both by the officer and by the prosecutor. What we know from areas of discretion in the criminal law is discretion overwhelmingly gets exercised in favor of white men like me and against um, black, indigenous, people of color. And so, you know, that off the bat, I'm I'm likely to benefit heavily from discretion if I'm found in possession of a small quantity of, you know, fentanyl or heroin or cocaine. Whereas a young indigenous uh, woman in Saskatchewan you know, I don't think you can convince me that she's going to benefit from the same discretion. We know that that's not true. The, the you know, Manitoba Justice Inquiry in 1999, the uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's uh, Report, the BC Commission on um, Missing and Murdered Women has all taught us that whenever police and prosecutors have discretion, it gets exercised in ways that are, that are, that are sexist and racist. So that's not, this is my point is that the bill itself may sound good, but when we implement things like this, they can be a problem. And then the last one I just briefly mentioned on C5, and then um, we can talk a bit about the BC pilot. I'm happy to hear your rejoinder if you have one, but just to be fair, you give me a chance to respond. The, yeah. um, you know, it's all predicated on diversion. And what we know is that diversion programs are not available in many parts of Canada, especially in rural and remote areas like Indigenous communities. And so when you combine that lack of ability of um, diversion with diversion programs with the discretion, it makes me concerned. Um, and so I, I much more favor a, you know, going the full distance of a, of a, you know, decriminalization of simple possession. But, um, you know, I spent time in Ottawa. I understand how politics works and I, I want to give you credit for, you know, raising it on consistent with the, with the prime minister. And when we talked about it, I had, you know, I think I'd, I just sort of said, you know, you got to do what you got to do, but yeah, I, still I remember stay it. On and I appreciate yeah, and, and, and you should. And, and others said the same thing. And I think that is the the nature of this is you've got to secure what you're able to secure with the I'm only one vote. And so you're able to secure what you're able to secure with uh, 
how politics is playing out on the ground in, in everyone's communities and including those who are liberal representatives, conservative representatives and, and otherwise um, and deliver, go as far as you possibly can. But you need advocates like yourself, uh, like the Canadian HIV AIDS legal network, like mom stop the harm. Everyone needs to continue to exert pressure to make sure we get to a, a more fulsome response on, on discretion. The only thing I would say is, because there are advocates like Anna Maria and Nasia who I value a great deal in in the criminal law space who are criticizing this on the discretionary grounds as well. And I think it's fair room to criticize because discretion will always be exercised in biased ways. But this fetters discretion. There is so there is existing discretion. Very few white men of means are being prosecuted, if if any, frankly, are being prosecuted for low level possession today because there is discretion in the system. And what this does is it fetters discretion across the board, consistent with evidence-based principles, that if you reasonably read those principles, there would be no real discretion to to lay a charge and to to proceed with a prosecution. Now, you might still get police laying charges in some cases. I think in almost no cases will you see prosecutors proceed with, uh, with, with that charge. And so you are going to get to a place, imperfect as it may be, where we're going to have de facto decrim across the country with C5, which I think is deserving of um, of support, although cr- worthy of criticism at the same time, because it, it doesn't address the stigma and, and doesn't address the in, in full the idea of treating drug use as a health issue. Now, treating drug use as a health issue, because your last criticism, I think, is a, is a worthwhile one also. The... If we want police officers to say to individuals who are suffering from substance use issues or who are just caught, even though they're going about their daily lives and 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 this isn't impeding the, their daily life in any way, it's their it's their it's occasional use and it's not it's not getting in their way. It, if that police officer is saying we're going to issue a warning to you in some cases or we're going to refer you to a healthcare provider, there has to be that healthcare provider and that's within that seventy two hour window for this to work. Um, people have to be willing to do this, of course. Um, and so uh, in terms of the resources that are available out there, I mean, this is where I would be much more critical. Um, the liberal government, both on safer supply, but also when it comes to treatment and evidence-based treatment, not that abstinence-based sort of detox approach that we see uh, from some governments. But Pierre attacks us for having safer supply. We don't really have safer supply. We talk about safer supply, but it's a pittance. We talk about tens of millions of dollars in a budget of $350 billion. Yeah. We talk about rehabilitation and, and on-demand treatment programs. But again, when you look at the scale of the challenge versus the actual supports that are there for mental health and treatment, it is a fraction of, of what is actually needed to address the scale of the crisis. And, and I don't know how to get the galvanize the public to get to a place where governments are delivering on those dollars but that to me seems to be in some ways the greatest criticism where we are being attacked for safer supply that we don't have and we are being told to not coddle people who use drugs but but we aren't actually delivering the on-demand treatment that is necessary yeah it's really lukewarm right exactly really lukewarm hate eating lukewarm food you spit it out <laughs> right the, the thing that really concerns me is, is that the incrementalism on the decriminalization here in BC also, you know, very well could backfire. We, we talked about unintended consequences earlier. And, you know, first of all, it's, um, it's only in BC. So everyone else in Canada who has a substance use disorder continues to be subject to, um, possession is still criminal. And, uh, the, the thing that we hear happens with de facto criminalization, because we've had that in Vancouver for years now, where the VPD yeah. has had a policy not to charge, is what the police do is they, they're not allowed to charge, they don't charge you, but they take your drugs and crush them under their, their, their foot. And then yeah, exactly. you've got to go out again and find, you know, you know, so it's just not helping people. Um, they're not going to, it's not like they're going to be like, okay, I guess I'm not going to use drugs right now. Like it's, it's people who have addiction are going to now have to go and do what they have to do to get those, those substances. So so anyway, for the decrim, though, it's only in BC. Most overdose deaths are outside of BC if you add them all up. So if you're outside of BC, you don't benefit. Um, secondly, it's only for a very short period of time. It's a few years. And so since it's a ministerial decision, you know, it was not a uh, legislative change. That means if if another government comes in, they can change it the next minute, you know, as soon as they're in and repeal it. I don't think Pierre Polyev is going to keep decriminalization in BC. Are you? Yeah, I can. When, I, when a, stro- when a stroke that. of the pen can change that. Yeah, I think that's, I think I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm not going to bet against that either. 
Um, the other one is it only applies to over 18, which superficially sounds, oh yeah, of course, over 18. What that means is you're still criminalizing uh, teenagers. And you know, most people who have long-term substance use disorders started using young. I mean, the people I've interviewed, it's Boy, this is not the, the childhood I had, you know, uh, 10, 11, 12 years old using heroin and cocaine. Uh, the, the youngest age that I personally have heard someone um, tell me about becoming addicted to a substance was it was alcohol, alcohol, and it was age five. Wow. Imagine what has happened to you in your life that you are turning to a substance like alcohol to, to cope. Okay. We got so much pain in this, in our country right now. And we need compassion for people and we need to follow the evidence and we got to look at our examine our own hearts. And for me, that's where it started. It's not just head knowledge and stats. And I'm glad we talk intellectually about stuff. We have to, but the other, the other side of this is we got to open our hearts up to people who are suffering in our community. And you know what, quite honestly, some people do need a hug. <laughs> I, I, a lot of people need a hug and handcuffs isn't what they need. They need a hug and a support. And you look, when people are harming others, yeah, we've got to deal with that. We that's not okay. Um, but we need to understand that behavior is coming from a place. And if we want to support our community and help that person to not keep living like that and spend a lot of money, you know, chasing the chasing the the symptom, we need to get to the the problem as well. So yeah, that's those are just a few thoughts, but I'm very grateful for the time that we've had to ch- chat about this today. And yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate we, the time as well. And I really appreciate your advocacy because I think you come at it from a really unique perspective and you are able to speak to people who have in a non-judgmental way this isn't this isn't a partisan attack back and forth i mean we, we've you know gone at pierre our fair share on this but at the end of the day this isn't about uh this is going at the the ideas that he is espousing today it's not it's not that he is a member of the conservative party that is the problem and i think we do need to make sure we're speaking to people across the political spectrum and the fact that you have standing by virtue of the relationships you built, sort of longstanding involvement in the Conservative Party from your youth days, being the justice advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. I think there is a, a huge amount of credibility to say, I've changed my mind when I looked at the evidence and I and I and I looked inwards to to say, how can we save lives in the most compassionate way and, and evidence-based way? And I changed my mind, and you can too. And I think in a very non-judgmental way dealing with the, you know, we have to confront misinformation in a, at where we find it. And, and I think we can't stand, we can't allow a video like Pierre shared to stand without, without no. major criticism. No. But when it comes to the, you know, community that I've got here in Beaches East York or my, my wife's family in Kamalaki, Ontario, who might say, you want to decriminalize all drugs? What, what are you talking about? Um, I, I think coming at it from a place of compassion and, following the evidence to save lives and making that the overall priority. We want to reduce harms and save lives. That's the goal. You share that yeah. goal. We share that goal. How can we best get there? And, exactly. and I think that's what we just have to keep hammering home. And, and I think you rightly, when you talked about, you mentioned uh, food and, and and challenges with, with food earlier on. I mean, if it's an eating disorder, if it's an alcohol use disorder, there are mental health challenges and, and and what people are dealing with in their own lives in, in, in particular moments in time where yeah. they, they, whether it could be gambling, there are any That's number right. of outlets that people ultimately um, are hurting themselves through in many cases. And we don't, we don't go after them with the criminal law. We, we take a step back and we say, how do we treat these people compassionately? They need our help. Now let's think about what that means to make sure we help them in the most effective way possible. And the fact that we don't do that with, illegal substances, I think it's just criminal. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And for me, that's a big thing I do in my talks. Now I have a list of all the things that people turn to, to cope with life. And they're, they're maladaptive coping strategies. They work in the moment, but they catch up to you. That's where people end up having midlife crises, like the ones I mentioned earlier. And I guarantee you, you know, look at that list of stuff on that list. We didn't mention things like over shopping or social yeah. media use. It goes yeah, exactly. big, you know, over volunteering, over functioning. It's there's good stuff on the list too. Over exercising. We've all seen folks like that even on the flip yep. side. And bottom line is like, you know, don't criticize someone else until we've looked at ourselves first. And, you know, we all come from places where we've, we've experienced harm and brokenness and we need to come with that non-judgmental attitude and spirit and that's something that i found from my faith has been really valuable uh to come from a you know holding high you know kind of being in high office 
you kind of imagine the amount of pride you get doing that and arrogance and then to be you know humbled and and see yourself as no better or worse than anyone else and not you know gesture to people sitting in the tents behind you and go those people you know we're oh, all exactly, people exactly you know, we're all exactly. people and and i think if we start from that perspective and we want to learn and grow and and support one another as as canadians like this is our this is supposed this is not rhetoric i mean this is supposed to be our our community and our families and people we know and so i want people to feel safe to come forward and talk to us when we're when they're in, in need of help and not to fear that we're going to look down on them or report them or whatever you know what it's so interesting to me it's happened on the climate side as well i'm i'm not a particularly religious person in any way whatsoever but there's so much common ground when it comes to compassion helping people and treating people as neighbors that on the climate file on i was the co-chair of the all-party anti-poverty caucus and have worked with religious organizations because we share an ultimate end goal here and and we are driven by the same compassionate values um that you know, might originally motivate from different places but but there's so much common ground and and this is another one and i think there are so many faith communities i i was a guest on a podcast with folks at the united church speaking yeah. about decriminalization that yeah. there, there are so many faith communities who want to treat people as neighbors and lift people up and 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 don't want to bring that sort of judgmental perspective and and i don't know i just find it very interesting the when we bracket off all that we disagree about in in different ways there's so much common ground to work from in such a constructive compassion and evidence-based way and i'm going to take from this in in a particular way the need to always emphasize compassion because i will always say we need to follow the evidence to save lives but i think you're right to always marry evidence with compassion because we need both and with that I, I, re I really appreciate your time thank you take care thanks for joining me on this episode of uncommons as always you can find me at beynate on social media or info at beynate.ca by email if you have ideas to share please do leave a positive review if you like what we're doing and otherwise until next time